Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 2. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in your bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. And this week, we'll begin our second look at the second half, the second chapter of Ephesians. Um, I'll try to do my review a little more swiftly than last week, but if you remember, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul begins with a greeting and then a massive um, benediction, a, a blessing of God for the blessings of God in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And we saw in that massive benediction every member of the triune God at work starting in eternity past and the present with a view to eternity future for our salvation and rich blessing. Then at the second half of Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul enters into a pastoral prayer, first giving thanks on behalf of the Ephesians to God in their hearing. That's the normal way Paul will, will give thanks for someone. He won't thank them directly. He'll give thanks to God in their hearing. He wants them to know how thankful he is to God for them. And then he begins chapter 2 with two contrasts. And we looked at the first over three weeks in verses 1 through 10. And the first contrast is a before and after. Both contrasts actually are before and after. The first individual and primarily vertical in its concern. And, and, and both contrasts, both 1 through 10 and 11 through 22, follow the same pattern. There's a predicament or a problem. There's a solution. There's a consequence. And so in the first Contrast in verses 1 to 3, we saw the predicament. We were dead in our sins. We were walking in the passions of the flesh. We were following the prince of the ruler of this world. We were children of wrath. And then what changed in verse 4 is, but God. God did something. And we learn what God did is he made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us with Christ. And he seated us with Christ. And the so what is that we have now been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only has he released us from the penalty of sin, but from its power. We used to walk one way. Now we've been refashioned, recreated in Christ to walk a different way. And that's setting up his instruction in the second half of the epistle. Starting in chapter 4, Paul's going to go through commands of what we are to live like in light of the truth in the first three chapters, and he groups it by walking. Walk a certain way. Walk in love. Walk in light. Don't walk as the Gentiles. That's all set up here in our first contrast. Now, last week began looking at the second contrast. Again, the same pattern. We're going to spend three weeks on it. Last week, we saw the problem. But the issue here now is no longer a vertical issue. It's primarily horizontal, the issue now is the hostility and the, the problems that particularly beset us as Gentiles. I'm assuming most of us here in this room are Gentiles by birth, not Jewish by descent. And you'll see in verse 11, that's how he addresses his readers here. Remember, therefore, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. And so we looked at the particularly and peculiarly Gentile problems and they, they were vast. These are things we take for granted. We assume now in the new covenant, but it, it's going to help us understand to look at these problems and look at the solution. And we're going to read this passage in just a moment, but I also want to suggest to you that the relevance for us today is this. Paul is going to lay out a very real, very important 
racial divide and conflict, a racial divide that God instituted. He set apart the people of Israel. He instituted circumcision. He gave them the law. He made them a peculiar people to himself. And consequently, we're going to read in our passage, there was an innate hostility between Jew and Gentile. Now, under the old covenant, Gentiles were welcome to come and and worship Yahweh. But in doing so, they had to become Israelites. They had to be proselytes. So Ruth can enter into Israel, but she stops being a Moabitess. She, She can't remain a Gentile. She enters in. Rahab as well. There are others. And so there's this divide. But here's the practical application I want us to consider as we look at this. We're going to learn that God, again, in verse 4, there's but God. In our text, in verse 3, but now, verse 13, that God has decisively acted to remove, nullify, and make peace between the most significant racial divide that he himself instituted. And the logic is this. If God has done that in Christ between a very real divide, a very real racial conflict, then how much more in Christ can the lesser divides, the divides among us, the divides among us in our country and the world, be also reconciled in Christ? If Jew and Gentile can be at peace, if neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything in Christ, then how much more our divides that, that's the logic, because we live in an age and a day of tribalism and, and divides. We're, we're divided among many lines, along many axes. And so as we look at this particular divide of Jew and Gentile, which God himself instituted, think through the implications in the church to every other lesser divide. Because as, as big as the divisions you may have in your head may be between you know, Democrat and Republican or or whatever you may think, they're not more significant than what we're about to read here. I'll remind you of the division we had as Gentiles formerly. Let's read our passage, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, and see what God has done in Christ to solve this great problem. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and Peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together 
into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you would give us strength to comprehend the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what you have done on our behalf in him. But help us to understand just what lengths you have gone to to create peace in the body of Christ. Help us to treasure and value that peace, that access to you. Let us not take it lightly. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we will look at the middle section, what God has done about it. And then next week, God willing, we'll look at the so what. You can see that set up in verse 19, so then. What do we make of this? What does this mean for us? So last week, we looked at the problem, and the problem was really fivefold. Um, you can see that in um, verse 12. You were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, without Christ, without a people, strangers to the covenants and promises, without covenants and promises, having no hope, without hope, and without God in the world. There is no greater divide than that. Whatever conflicts and racial issues are going on in the world around us today, they are not greater in in scope and significance than that divide. Having no hope, having no God, having no Christ, having no covenants and no promises and no people. That was the problem. This morning, we're to see the solution. By the way, another difference in these two contrasts, whereas the first focus in our vertical issues with God, this is primarily looking at our horizontal issues with each other. The second is that Paul looks primarily to the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the enthronement of Christ as the solution to our first set of problems. Here, it's Christ's death on the cross. You see that in verse 13. We're brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, he has broken down in his flesh, and the implication on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. And then more explicitly in verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Now, in one sense, you can't separate Jesus' death and resurrection, but Paul is looking, zooming the camera in, as it were, to the ascension and resurrection primarily and how it solves our problems of being dead. The notion we were dead, but we were raised with Christ as Christ was raised, and we were under the tyranny of this world in our flesh, but as Christ was raised above all powers, so we've been raised. We were children of wrath, but now we're destined to rule. Here, we're to understand that Jesus on the cross was not just reconciling us to God, but also to each other. And again, you'll, you'll see this as we study through Ephesians, but I submit to you again and again and again, the gospel, what God offers to do for us, what he has done for us, what, what is offered to us in the gospel is far greater, I think, than you and I might be given to think. So often we look at one of the blessings of the gospel, a great blessing, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and that is a, a primary, central, glorious, wonderful truth of the gospel. The gospel does not give us less than that, but we're learning it gives us so much more than that. And again, we're going to see that this morning as we see that Jesus Christ, he himself, is our peace. So we ended last week by seeing that what God has done can be summarized as taking those who are far off and bringing us near. And he did that by the blood of Christ. In Jesus' death, us Gentiles who were estranged from the covenants, estranged from the promises, estranged from the people, without God, without hope, without Christ, which is in one way of saying far off, 
have been brought near. And we're brought near by the blood of Christ. This morning, we're going to see how. Paul's going to unpack further how that was done. Okay? And so he begins by this bold declaration in verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Now, peace dominates our passage this morning. The word itself occurs four times in our text. Verse 14, he himself is our peace. Verse 15, so making peace. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. If you add to that the the similar notion of reconciliation in verse 16, that he meant reconcile us, make peace, and the antonym hostility at the end of 14 and at the end of 16, you can really see how peace dominates this passage. There's a problem of hostility that requires reconciliation in order for peace to be made. That's, That's the focus here. And so Paul begins by boldly declaring that Jesus Christ himself, it's emphatic, is our peace which may be an odd way of thinking about things. We know Jesus makes peace. In fact, Paul says so a little later in verse 15. Making peace is how verse 15 ends in the ESV. And and Jesus Christ can preach and declare a message of peace. We'll see that in verse 17. He came and preached peace. So Jesus makes peace on the cross and he preaches peace, but in a very profound and real way, he himself is our peace. Now, this links back to Old Testament passages and predictions. And we're in the Christmas season, and for those of you who are familiar with Handel's Messiah, you may recognize Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's his title, Prince of Peace. Of peace. Or maybe a little less known passage, Micah 5, verses 4 through 5. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah 5, 4 through 5. Or a book we've previously studied, Zechariah 9. A messianic prophecy. I will cut off the chariot from a frame, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. So he is our peace. That's a title as Prince of Peace, linking back with Old Testament passages. But I think in an even more profound way, we will see he, in fact, is our peace even as we go through this passage. Now let's pause and what do we mean by peace? Well, peace is represented by the Jewish word shalom. Um, even the, the capital city of Israel, Yerushalom, peace, means wholeness, absence of danger or threat, security. And, and one of the things we need is peace. It's how Paul opens this letter to the Ephesians. He gives the Jewish greeting, shalom, peace, and the Greek greeting, charis or grace, We see that in chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in need of peace. And in in the the immediate context, it's the peace that we need because of our farness away from God. If we're without hope, what are we in? Despair. If we're without confidence and promises, we're, we're bereft. If we're without a people, we're alone. 
We have no peace. We need peace. That peace is brought to us as we are brought near in Christ. So, Paul goes on then in three relative clauses to describe how Jesus himself is our peace. And we'll look at them in these three points here. A, he has made us both one. He has made us both one. Now, Paul will speak of peace both vertically and horizontally, but most of the time in our passage, he's actually focusing on horizontal peace, which again, may be a new thought for you. We know that according to, to Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God. We, I think it's a familiar concept to Christians that the gospel brings peace between man and God. But Paul is insistent here, the gospel in the body of Christ brings peace between man and man and Man and woman and slave and free and Jew and Greek, male and female. There is a real and radical peace that has been created amongst ourselves. Most specifically in this context, Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised. And so how did Jesus himself become our peace? Well, the first way he describes it is this. He has made us both one. Who has made us both one. Now, this is a a theme he's going to go on and develop. Turn over to chapter 3. When we get to chapter 3, sometime in 2020, no doubt, um, there's only a few weeks left of the year. Um, Paul will describe this reality as a mystery. He's going to go at great lengths expressing this. Just look in um, verse 3. How the mystery is made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promises, promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So that's, that's the big mystery, that, that where there was two, there's now one. Before, Gentiles were invited to be saved by stopping being one thing and becoming another. Stop being a Gentile and go become an Israelite. And we have examples, even in the Messianic line of that. So it wasn't as though God was only about saving the Jews, but the Gentiles needed to come to Jerusalem. So the Queen of Sheba comes. The Old Covenant was a, was a go-see covenant. Come and see, come to Jerusalem, come to the temple, behold the glory of God, behold this people that he has made for his glory. And we have examples of people who who switch their allegiance. Rahab the prostitute commits treason. I mean, she lets domestic terrorists in, houses them, sends them out, and consequently her city falls and is destroyed and cut off. And it's righteous and right of her because she casts her lot with the people of God. But make no mistake, this is a radical switch of allegiance. She does not remain a Canaanite. She has cast her lot with the people of God. What we learn now is the way Christ has made peace is by making us both one. Now, I'll I'll move on from here because he'll talk about this more in a, a verse or two. But understand, that's the first way of describing it. He'll go on to say how something needed to happen for that to be done. How can he make the two one? He goes on to re-describe it in the second relative clause. He has broken down the dividing wall. He's broken down the dividing wall. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
Now, there's some speculation as to what this wall is. Some people think it might be a partition in the temple. In the temple courts, there's the court of the Gentiles, there's the court of the, men and wo- the women and children, there's the court of men, there's the holy place, the holy of holies. It's unlikely that Ephesian Gentiles are aware of that division in the temple. I think far more likely what he's describing as this dividing wall that separates Jew and Gentile is what he goes on to say in the next phrase, the very law of Moses itself. If you think about it, I think that makes sense. What ultimately separates the Jew and the Gentile is the Jew's obligation under the covenant made at Sinai to keep the law as best as they can, and ideally by faith, and in doing so, it separates them out from the other peoples. And just think of the example of Daniel in Babylon. So Daniel gets given to the, the chief of the eunuchs, which strongly suggests his fate, but he can't eat the food they're eating. And, and he can't um, do the things they're doing. And so he has to plead, let us not defile ourselves with these foods. And so even in Babylon, as Daniel is attempting to be faithful to the law of Moses, he's, he and his kinsmen are separating themselves out. There's division. Intermarriage was forbidden between the, the Gentiles, the nations, and the people of God. And we know that this was an issue even in the early church. We may have time to look at Acts 10, 11, and 15, where we see even Peter was struggling over this with Gentile converts. There was a real wall of division, because as Jews were attempting to be faithful to keeping the law of necessity, they were being divided from the Gentiles and their unclean practices. They couldn't eat at the same table for fear of the food preparations or unclean foods being served. These are very real issues. And it's not just matters of legalism. It's matters of faithfulness to the covenant. Daniel's a prime example of that. So there's a real dividing wall. There's a real divide. Any Jew who's going to attempt to be faithful to the law of Moses is going to find again and again and again division between himself and his Gentile neighbor. That that there's no way around that fact. But Christ has made the two one. And in order to make the two one, this dividing wall has to be removed. What's inconceivable is in the body of Christ, different groups of people following different sets of rules and regulations. No, no, no. The dividing wall has to be broken down. The dividing wall is broken down. He describes it then a third way. What does it mean he's made us one? Well, it means he's broken down the dividing wall. What does that mean? It means, and here's the, the controversial bit, he has abolished in his flesh the hostility. He's abolished in his flesh the hostility. That's the third phrase. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Uh, What does that mean? This is um, a very difficult passage. Primarily because you you need to harmonize what Paul says here with what Paul says elsewhere. What even Paul says a little later in this book. But I'm going to submit to you that I think what it says is what it says. That Christ on the cross abolished the law of commandments. I think that's what it says. I think that's what it means. Let me explain why that would be controversial or why that would be difficult to harmonize. Because Paul, in some places, speaks very strongly and negatively of the law of Moses. My men's group's going through Romans. We went through Romans 7. And Paul insists we had to die to the law, which held us captive, so that we could be joined to Christ. And yet even as Paul speaks negatively of the law in places, he speaks very positively in other places. In fact, turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, which we'll get some time... I won't even guess. Um, Look at Ephesians 6. 
Verse 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you. They may live long in the land. He's quoting the fifth commandment right there from Exodus 20. So whatever we make of he's abolished the law, there's got to be room for Paul quoting and applying the law in chapter 6. Because of this, and I'll, I'll move briefly. We can have more time in the ABF to go deeper with this. This is a huge topic. There are two primary approaches to try to reconcile this. What do we do with the fact that Paul insists that we've died to the law, we're not under the law, or here he abolished the law, and yet Paul in other places will quote and apply the law? Well, there's three options, only two of which I think are remotely faithful. The, the liberal option is simply to say Paul contradicts himself, he makes mistakes. We'll, we'll discount that option. Um, uh, so remaining, then, you've got two primary options. Now, the, the, probably the majority view in the church, especially over church history, is the view that when Paul speaks of the law being set aside or abolished, he's really only speaking of parts of the law. And under this view, um, Thomas Aquinas put this forward probably most clearly, the law is seen to contain three divisions. You may have heard this. Civil, ceremonial, and moral. And so you look at the law of Moses and those commandments that deal with Israel as a geopolitical nation. Laws like you need to have a parapet on your rooftop. Laws about um, um, you know, death penalty punishments for adultery or other things. That belongs to the civil law. And then you've got the ceremonial laws, the temple, the sacrificial system, the clean and unclean food laws. That all belongs to the ceremonial law. And then you've got the, the, the moral law, probably most clearly seen in the Ten Commandments. And so under this view, probably the, the most popular view in the church, when Paul speaks, like, say, here and other places of us dying to the law, he only means the civil and the ceremonial law. For Christ's once-for-all perfect sacrifice does away with, in a sense, the, the sacrificial system, does it not? And Israel being set aside as a nation as the gospel goes forth to the Gentiles, that, that sets aside and, and makes to no effect the, the civil laws. I mean, there are some in the church who want to apply the civil laws in our country, but that's a minority view. Most recognize the time for those, at least now, has passed. And so under this view, what remains then is the moral law, and the moral law is most clearly seen in the Ten Commandments. That, that's one view. It's not the view I hold. It's not what I think Paul's saying here, but it's very good and godly men hold that view. I don't think it'll work. Now, the advantage that view has is it's able to account for the times Paul does quote and apply the law. And every time Paul does quote and apply the law, they'll say, see, that's just part of the ongoing, continuing, enduring moral law. And whenever Paul speaks negatively of the law, he's speaking really primarily of the ceremonial, the civil law. Sometimes this is called the tripartite view of the law, that the law can be divided into three parts. I don't think that's what Paul is doing. Um, briefly, um, the short rebuttal to that position is nowhere do we see any evidence of Jesus the apostles dividing the law into three parts. Nowhere in the law itself do we see any clear division. Go, go to Leviticus, not, don't actually go there, but go read the first and second greatest commandment. The second greatest commandment, Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbors yourself, is immediately followed by a command about not breeding animals together, followed by a commandment about, you know, sowing crops. There's no clear divisions as you go through the law, and there are a lot of difficult cases. 
Now, Jesus and his apostles do know distinctions in the law. They can have the heavy and the light, the greatest commandment, the least commandment. But more to the fact, and just briefly turn, please, to 1 Corinthians 3. I'll try to show you that I think Paul, when he speaks of the law this way, especially the law of commands and ordinances, it means the whole kit and caboodle, the whole deal, the entire Mosaic covenant. Um, I'll try to show you that from 1 Corinthians Second, sorry, Second Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll have more time to go on this in the ABF. I'm going to have to move on here quickly in a moment. But um, 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So Paul's about to contrast what's new about the new covenant with what's old about the old covenant. Not, so here's the contrast. The new covenant is not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now what on earth does he mean by the letter? Now if the ministry of death, this is one of those places where Paul speaks negatively about the law. The ministry of death carved in letters of stone. Now, there's only one possible referent that he's speaking of there. What, what, what words were carved in stone? The Ten Commandments, which, under the first view, is the moral law that endures. That's what he's citing here, is what's different. If the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory... There's Paul speaking positively. It's a glorious law. The Ten Commandments are wonderful. They're just not what we're under in the New Covenant. That Moses' face shown because of his glory. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. That's Paul's logic. Even as he speaks negatively, he insists there's a glory, there's a goodness about the law. Even as he can call it the ministry of death. His main point is the new covenant is so much greater, so much better. So, we'll we'll come back to this point in a few minutes. I just want to argue that Paul here is meaning the entire law. So back in Ephesians 2, this is the radical statement he makes. Christ himself is our peace. What do you mean, Paul? Well, he's made us both one. How do you do that, Paul? He has broken down the dividing wall. What do you mean, Paul? In his flesh, on the cross, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Notice those plurals. Commandments expressed in ordinances. And if you think about that, and we set aside the problem of what do you do with Paul quoting the Ten Commandments in Ephesians 6 for a moment, you can see how once that law is removed, an obligation to keep that law as a, as a, as a governing factor over God's people is removed. Now the people of God can coexist together. And there won't be some marching after one set of orders and some marching after another set of orders, some eating certain foods and some eating other foods, some circumcising some knots. Now, in Christ, there can be peace. At least that should make thematic sense, how the removal of that law as a governing tutor, to coin a, quote a metaphor, can create peace, can create peace. So, that is, I think, what Paul means by he himself is our peace. He has more to say about it. We'll go a little further forward. He has abolished in his flesh the hostility 
specifically the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And that hostility is, I think, primarily horizontal as he's framed things. Yes, the commandments also create hostility vertically with God because we cannot do the things God calls on us to do. And so those under the law have a hostility that's revealed in them because of the law. But it also creates this horizontal hostility. And again, just think of Daniel and Babylon as an example of that. Expressed in ordinances. We need to move on. Um, So he himself is our peace. And what Paul means there primarily is Christ Jesus in his body, in him. And this gets back to that notion of in him has created peace between Jew and Gentile, between male and female, between slave and free, between... um, Every possible division you can imagine. In Christ, they're at peace because the hostility has been removed. And the primary thing he's thinking about is the law expressed in commandments and ordinances. So, then we move on to a purpose statement that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, he himself is our peace, point one. Point two, he has a purpose. He has a purpose. And you see that with the might language of verse 15 and 16. That he might create, and 16, and might reconcile. This is, so this is the language of purpose. This is what he's done now. Why has he done it? So, in his flesh... He destroyed, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He removed the dividing wall. Why? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. One in place of two. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. I think I can show you how Paul views things here. Because the immediate question you may ask, based on what I'm saying I think Paul means... And the immediate question my brothers and sisters who hold to this sort of three-part view will ask is, well, does that mean then as Christians we're just free to do as we want? We're not under the law of Moses, so let us sin that grace may abound. Go follow your heart, be free. No, that's not how Paul envisions things. So this is a famous passage about missions and about accommodation in missions, but I want you to notice how Paul frames things. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Now, wait a second, Paul, you are a Jew. You've gone to great lengths in other places in Philippians to make it clear of the tribe of Benjamin. What do you mean, to the Jews, I became a Jew? Paul doesn't primarily, first and foremost, consider himself a Jew anymore. Well, he must view himself as a Gentile. Keep reading. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. So first off, Paul doesn't fundamentally in the first instance view himself as a Jew. And he doesn't view himself in the first instance as under the law. And then he answers the objection we might have. Though not being myself under law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Again, he doesn't view himself as Gentile either. He becomes as one. See, Paul doesn't fundamentally classify himself as Jew or Gentile, as under the law or not under the law. He's got a third notion in mind, which we see here. To those outside the law became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So there are rules that govern Paul's life. He calls it here the law of Christ. 
and he sees it as distinct from the law of Moses. So Paul is not free to live as he pleases. The second half of Ephesians is to be filled with exhortations, commands, imperative verbs. Walk this way, not that way. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then, when we get there, I'll unpack this further. He cites the old covenant to show its rightness. Because even though we're not under the law of Moses, the law of Moses is holy, right, and good. And so whatever the law of Moses commands, you be hard-pressed to say is a bad thing. And so under the law of Moses, the fifth commandment tells children, honor the mother and father. You want proof this is right? It's right there in the old covenant. So here I think we see Paul's position. He's, Paul, are you a Jew? I'm a Christian. Paul, are you a Gentile? I'm a Christian. Paul, are you under the law? I'm a Christian. Paul, are you free from the law? I'm a Christian. He views himself in that position. That's, I think, the logic of Ephesians chapter 2. Because now read that in light of verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, which means Gentile stops, exi- stops existing and Jew stops existing, and now there's something new, which is exactly the way I think he frames it in 1 Corinthians 9. That, that would mean any other thing you want to put in front of Christian disappears first as well. Are you an American? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian American. Anything else you want to put, being in Christ is the primary category. So Paul, as a Jew, can still speak in Romans 9 of having a desire for his countrymen according to the flesh. But he's a Christian first. And Jewish, according to the flesh, second. Far less significant. See, being in Christ, being made new, gives you a primary identity. This is how there can be peace in the body for all of our divisions. If we can get this, that before your political affiliation, before your genealogical, whatever it is, you're first and foremost in Christ a Christian, and the person sitting next to you, if they're trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is as well, that's the basis peace can be made upon. Christ has created in himself one new man in place of two. That's the basis for which Paul can make statements like he does in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, first and foremost. Because Paul, of course, will go on and give instructions to husbands and wives and children and slaves and masters. But first and foremost, the Christians. First and foremost, we're in Christ. And then any other affiliations come Later, to create a new man, one in place of two, making peace between them. So making peace. Now this peace is a radical peace. It allows Romans, Roman centurions, the the oppressor of the Jewish people, to be in the same body as the Jews who are oppressed by them. It allows zealots who are terrorists against the Romans. They were trying to covertly, trying to undermine Rome, to worship alongside of Romans. It would allow Matthew, a tax collector, a sellout, a a betrayer of his people to worship alongside as well. And in the early church, we saw this. Masters and slaves, male and female, Jews and Greeks, worshiping the same God through his son together in peace and in unity. Point B. He has another purpose. His first purpose is to make this new man and make peace. And then second, to reconcile us both to God. Because he does have peace with God in mind as well. He does have peace with God in mind as well. That he might 
reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In one body. This again gets back to the notion of all blessings are in Christ. I'll talk about this more in the ABF, but I think the notion is this. Jesus Christ himself fulfills the law perfectly. And in fulfilling the law, he doesn't destroy it, he doesn't break it, but in keeping it, and as we enter into him, we keep it perfectly. And in that way, it cannot have reign over us. And we're freed to obey a new law, the law of Christ, a new set of commands that are in keeping with, consistent with everything laid out in the law of Moses, but distinct from them. In his body... In his death on the cross, in paying for our sin, removing the law's demand against our sin, he thereby kills the hostility. And he recon- I love this picture. He reconciles us to each other even as he reconciles us to God. Look, look at the way Paul spells this out. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we all enter into Christ by faith. We are reconciled to each other even as we are reconciled to God in Christ. These are all the blessings that are in Christ. And we have communion this morning, so we're going to stop here. Um, And I'm going to invite the men forward. We'll, We'll pick this up next week. But this is a glorious truth. The peace that we can have with each other and with God is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A verse or two later in our passage, it speaks about Christ preaching and speaking peace to those who are far and peace to those who are near. And before we enter into our time of communion, I just want to call on you. If you are far from God, or if you think you are near, the living Christ is preaching peace to you. He's offering peace to you. Peace with God. Peace with your fellow man. A peace that was bought the cost of his death on the cross in his flesh. He offers that to you. He preaches that to you. His word offers that to you. You can have peace with God. You can have peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are invited to this table, but only those who have have turned to Christ from their sin in faith are in him. In him through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. So I just call on you, even if you are far from him, and I don't care how far you think you are, the beginning of our passage laid out just how far the Gentiles were away, and yet, but now, in Christ, you who once were far have been brought near. So no matter how far away you are, you can be brought near in Christ, and you can be united to Christ by faith. Let's have a word of prayer as we transition to our time of communion. Lord God, What a marvelous grace is given to us in the gospel. What riches of mercy, what heights of love. You have made peace, peace between yourself and us. You have made peace between us and our fellow man in Christ. You have removed the hostility. You've removed the dividing wall. You have in your flesh on the tree receive the penalty of the law for our sin so that in you we can be forgiven, in you we can be brought near. Lord, I pray that you would gift faith to anyone in this room who does not know you and in this room who's still far from you, that you would draw them, that you would bring them, you would open their eyes to behold the glory of the new covenant, to behold the glory of your son and to trust in him for salvation. It's in his name we pray, amen.